I would like to welcome you to worship this morning as New Hope Reformed Church. We are celebrating our Lord's Incarnation this morning, which uh, will be a Christmas worship service. We are a liturgical church, but we are Calvinistically liturgical. If you go back to the Reformation, you will find among the English Reformed Church uh, a book called The Book of Common Worship. You're probably more familiar with the Book of Common Prayer, which the Anglicans have, but among us, the Reformers, we had a book very much like it. It was a book filled with um, ancient liturgy brought into service to the Reformation, but it always said on the cover, for the voluntary use of churches. The Reformers were all for the kind of worship we do. In fact, that's what they did. They did it in England. They did it on the continent. But they felt that uh, making a set liturgy required was actually enslaving to the church. And so our Book of Common Prayer, our Book of Common Worship, was effectively always a suggestion to the churches. We worship the Lord according to the regulatory principle uh, worshiping God uh, concerning his incarnation is absolutely fine. We don't have to do it on a set day, and we never uh, agreed to that. And so with a little bit of Calvinistic rebellion in our bones, we're actually celebrating Christmas in July. Our scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. 
When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Christ. Please be seated. As I said, it is not really Christmas according to the calendar, but that's okay on another level as well. Uh, The date for Christmas was chosen uh, for its liturgical usage. It fit, uh, for a number of reasons, very well on December 25th, but to be uh, totally honest, Christian scholars are not really in agreement on the calendar date that that first Christmas was. You can do a huge amount of research on it, and you will hear a lot of people who are absolutely sure they know. But the truth is, you know, it's kind of iffy exactly when his birth took place. So uh, it's okay. We can worship the Lord and his nativity pretty much any Lord's Day we want to. And our text is sort of like Christmas in that... It is usually applied to Christmas, but it's not really Christmas either in a chronological sense. If you look at what's happening in our passage, there are a number of uh, time signatures that show us this isn't the night Christ was born. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, so it's after he was born, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Verse 11. And when they had come into the house, not the manger, but the house, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And then in verse 16... Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. 
So uh, those nativity scenes that show uh, shepherds kneeling with rich kings standing beside them, trying to show that Jesus came to give total equity, and on the night he was born you had peasant and king owning him. Eh, It's not really true, actually. We're two years after that. Mary and Joseph are in a house, and these wise men have come. He's probably two years old, um, but it gets preached at Christmas time. The three kings of Orient are. The truth is, uh, that's a little problematic true, to be honest. Um, both whether they're kings and the number of them. It's a somewhat complicated question. Um, We're told in uh, verse 3 that when these wise men, as the New King James puts it, kings, as some of the older translations put it, when they arrived in Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem was troubled. Well, Three guys on camels aren't going to produce that effect. Jerusalem is a major trade hub. Three guys riding in on camels is what they call Tuesday. It's not going to really trip any bells. But all of Jerusalem is disturbed because these folk come, which suggests we're dealing with a fairly large caravan of people. It gets all the way up to Herod the king. Where, where did these people come from? What are they doing? Uh, that's a lot more than three. The truth is, the three kings is pretty much a wives' tale, an old wives' tale. Probably inspired by the fact that there are three kinds of gifts mentioned. So it would be very easy when telling the story to children to give names to somebody who gave gold, somebody gave names to frankincense, and so on. And that's kind of how things developed, to the point where in church history, you've got all three kings named, and you've got the gifts given a a spiritual significance, and uh, it wasn't like that. It was a group of very rich and very powerful people who were noticed in the city gate, And whether they were kings, it's not completely inaccurate to call them that, but uh, you need to dig a little deeper because they're not the kind of men who sit on thrones and rule countries. The Greek New Testament uses the word majoi for them, which is the Greek pronunciation of the word magi. And... uh, Modern translations have shied away from calling them kings. As I mentioned, the New King James says, uh, wise men, the Amplified Version uses wise men, but then in parentheses puts the word astrologer, and that makes sense because they're following stars. But it's very, very clear that they're trying to kind of get away from the image of kingship. Why would they do that? Well, the reason why they would do it is because we do, in fact, know who the Magi are. And um, at times, it's been kind of a scandal who the Magi are. Magi are 
primarily priests. Now, they also can be magistrates. Many of them were. They were under the Persian king. Persia had a king. These men are not that king. But they may be government officials by virtue of the fact that they are priests. They are priests in the religion of Zoroastrianism. And in Zoroastrianism, fire is sacred. Fire is the focus of worship. They worship the elements, but fire is above the rest of the elements considered sacred, which is why, by the way, when you read Daniel, uh, when the Babylonians are in charge, they're killing people by throwing them into fire, but when the Persians, the Zoroastrians, take over, that practice is removed. There's no more fiery furnaces. They're throwing people to lions. The reason why is they would never dream to throw dirty, rotten criminals into their most sacred element. They're not going to do that. So the lions get a meal. But in Zoroastrianism, fire is sacred. Fire gives light. The stars and the heavenly bodies are known by light. Therefore, they are likely generated by fire. Therefore, they are sacred Therefore, the priests of Zoroastrianism worship them as divinities. And that's who these folk are. They are absolutely pagan priest magistrates. And if you know that, it gives a sort of funny feeling to you that they're portrayed as the good guys here. And and they are. They're put forward positively Zoroastrian priests who are following a star which in their religion is deific. They follow it to what they believe to be the king of the Jews. They come and worship him. And Matthew is obviously putting them in a positive light. Um, What are we to make of that? Well, uh, it's true that in a sense, our passage is built around three kings. But not the Zoroastrian Magi per se, but three types of kings. Matthew is contrasting them and showing us God's will concerning them. And so with that in mind, without breaking into We Three Kings from Orient R, which has a lot of the uh, old wives' tale in it, we're going to look at these three kings and see what Matthew is trying to tell us about them. And the first one is the Magi. What is God, by his providence, trying to say to us in this event? Well, the Magi are religious, and the Magi are rulers. What is the essence of man's religions? Well, if you go to the New Testament, if you go to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul uh, shares with us what human religion is kind of based on. Now, it's, it's drawn... From it. It's not exactly what he's directly talking about, but in Romans 1, verse 18 through 23, we read this. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became evil in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Now, Paul is clearly saying human religion is idolatrous, and human religion is not salvatory. It is human, it is not divinely given, but that is not the totality of everything Paul has said here. He has also said that in creation proper, there are some things that man sees about God. Again, it's not salvatory, but they see his eternal power and godhood. In other words, human beings innately, intuitively can see by creation there is a God. And he is the one who created all things. They are able to intuit the fact that if they are created by God, they owe God honor and glory, that's not lost on pagans. That's not lost on Zoroastrians. So there's kind of a certain knowledge of God that even pagans can have. And even more than that, Paul talks about in the beginning they knew God. He's referring back to the Garden of Eden. He's referring back to God walking with man in the cool of the day. Mankind's beginning was in a face-to-face relationship with God. And as the fall takes place and as history rolls out, that's not necessarily forgotten. It it goes into the, the, the troubled memory of mankind. It gets corrupted. But our first fathers walked with God. And when I say our first fathers, I'm not talking just about ours. I'm talking about every human being's. And so human religion though it cannot save at all, it is still kind of built on a naturalistic understanding of God. What is true of religion is also true of rule. Where did mankind get the idea to establish kings? Not from... God's revealed law, in fact, we're told very specifically, in God's revealed law, God claims to be king. Uh, He takes it very personal when God's people set up a king. We've been through 1 Samuel 8 several times. Uh, God reserved kingship to himself. And when the visible church rebelled and said, we're going to have a king, God said this is going to be terrible, and it turned out to be, and he attached to it the statement your king is going to be like all the other kings of the earth, which means all the other kings of the earth are terrible. Where did man get the idea to have kings? Well, it's really kind of an innate understanding of God. God is king, he rules. 
And certain men, by reason of strength and aggressiveness, basically put themselves in God's place. And they said, I'll be God. I'll be the king. But it does show that they have kind of an innate remembrance of God. God is the king, and they are trying to steal that authority. Among men, the religions of man and the rule of man, if right takes place, will submit to the Christ. Christ is the religious gift of God to men. Anyone who is religious should seek the Christ because he is God's answer. And quite frankly, the rule of man should give way to the rule of Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no king but what has Christ as his king, and that is how their rule should be. It should be that the emperor bends the knee to Christ. The priest should bend the knee to Christ. Everything human should bend to Christ. And that is exactly what we see the Magi do. They're pagans, but God is drawing pagans to the Christ. God has graciously chosen to give them saving knowledge, to bring them to the one who is his answer, his king. And so what Matthew is showing us is these things that are the enemy of God these things which are the enemy of Christ, God by his power can bend them to him. And the Magi do that. They bow before Christ. They worship him. Uh, You don't generally worship a human being. Now, some kings claim to be divine, but the Magi are bowing to Christ as divine and worshiping him, and they are giving him offerings, which you would do to the divine, the the place that religion should take them, it has taken them. The place that human rule should take them, it has taken them, because God has drawn them there. God has sent them a star to lead them to Christ. God has spoken to them by angels. The grace of God has reached out to fallen pagan religion and fallen pagan rule, and he has bent these kings to his king. And this is what should take place. There is no religion on earth but what should bend the knee to Christ. There is no king on earth but should bend the knee to Christ, and so they do. And they are our first king. But there are three kings. Our second king is Herod. Herod is king of the Jews currently. Is Herod a secular king or is he a religious officer in the visible church? The answer is, quite frankly, yes, at least in Herod's mind. We know Herod from secular history as much as we know him from the Bible. And the picture of him in both places lines up perfectly. He is an absolute terrible human being. 
he murders his wife, he murders his son, uh, he schemes to get power, he is put in power by Cleopatra, which he has an affair with, and later by Rome, when Cleopatra has outlived her usefulness. Herod is the very image of the power-hungry, aggressive human king. You can see that here. He kills the children of the town. He lies. He connives. He's a typical politician. And yet, it can't be lost on Herod that in revealed religion, which he has stepped into because he is king of the Jews, king is an anointed office. It is part of the church. And Herod lives that out, at least to the degree that it benefits him. In the Old Testament, there is a rebuilding of the temple. You have Solomon's temple, it's glorious, the Babylonians knock it down. Then with the return, you have Zerubbabel's temple. It's not physically glorious, it's very small, but God promises great things will happen here. They do And the temple that Jesus comes into is Zerubbabel's temple. But man, has it been expanded. By the time Jesus comes to the temple, and he is talking to the priests there, by the time Christ comes into the temple and drives out the merchant uh, uh, changers, the temple is uh, eight times the size that it was before. Herod doesn't knock down Zerubbabel's temple, but he so expands it that there's nothing left of it by the time he's done. Herod builds a religious structure that is considered one of the ancient wonders of the world. Why does he do that? Well, he knows that his power base is not only what we would consider secular, but it's also religious. He, he holds power in what we would call church and state. He is a type of king, and what does he look like? Well, as I said, he looks self-centered and dangerous. He will lie to the Magi. He will set them up for a fall. He will kill innocents to preserve his power. Uh, he he is, is wrapped up in his own power. That's what motivates him. He is like men of power in the state and like men of power in the church. The truth is, history has shown us that men with a hunger for power are not just uh, out there in the world. They're not just kings. But they are also bishops. And they are superintendents. And they are uh, popes. And they are presidents of seminaries, and they are pastors of churches. Men of power uh, seek a kingly life, and Herod straddles both places, and Herod lives like what you would have thought the Magi would be like. You would have thought the Magi, being pagans, would be the ones to be hardened to God to be an enemy of God's revelation, but they're not. 
Rather, it is the king of the Jews. It is the anointed king of the visible church, who is not fully Jewish. He is only half Jewish, but he is half Jewish. He is not in the line of David, but he has the anointing of kingship. He is a church man. He is effectively the highest church man out there, arguably. High priest might rival that, but he's, he's up there. He is the villain of our story. Matthew is contrasting the Magi with the man who is supposed to be God's man. He is supposed to care for the church of God. His office is to make sure that true religion is maintained. The people of God are protected. God is honored. All of that is part of the kingship that Herod is supposed to uphold. And he doesn't uphold it at all. He is interested in himself. He is threatened by the power of God. He believes that this messianic king will take his power away and he is willing to do anything he can to keep that from happening and you know what he's not wrong he has reason to be afraid because this one who is being celebrated this one who was born two years ago Uh, is the one that the angels speak of in Revelation chapter 11, where we read this. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of this world, Babylonia, Rome, China, Madagascar, the United States, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The kingdoms of our world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Today, uh, you can hear a modern coming alongside Herod and saying, look, you don't have to worry. This is, after all, the Christ of God. His, his kingship is spiritual. In fact, he's going to say that. My kingdom is not of this world, therefore my servants would fight. Uh, He's not going to bother your secular reign. There's a distinction between sacred and secular. And, you know, he's just kind of going to be religious over here, and you're going to be fine. You know, you're going to sit on the secular throne, and your power base isn't going to be threatened in any way by this messianic king because that's religious and you're secular. Herod knows better. And Herod's right. When we call Jesus 
King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is an all-encompassing statement. Are you a king? You have a king. Are you a lord? You have a lord. There is someone over you, someone to whom you must give fealty. Herod knows that. Herod's not an idiot. Herod is a self-centered parasite on the face of humanity, and he wants to stay that way, and he knows that God's rule won't leave him there. That God will rule, the God who gave a law, the God who calls himself king, uh, and Herod has every right to be threatened. And he acts very much in accord with what is logical if you're Herod. Because God will not tolerate those who would sit on his throne. The kings of the earth deify themselves. Herod is acting that way. God won't tolerate it. And Herod knows that. Because the third king in our passage is the king who has been born according to prophecy. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. You're good Calvinists, you've been catechized, you know that when we call Jesus the Christ, he is the prophet, the priest, and the king. There is a promise in all of scripture that a, a man will come who will be the final prophet, the final priest, and the final king. It will all be in one man, which has never been before. He will be the anointed one that all redemption will be found in. That's him. He's two years old, and he's born. He is the king of kings, the king of all lords. He is the one the angels say, God will take the kings of the earth and will reign in. This is the Lord Christ. And he is dangerous to men's power. He is the true focus of the worship of the church. And he is the true focus of the obedience of the state. On Judgment Day, what's going to happen? God is going to judge, right? He's going to judge all men. The scripture clearly says it. It also says he's going to judge all nations. Christ will judge all nations. Where is there a division of sacred and secular then? The answer is there are none, and Christ will judge them then. He will sit as king of them. The promised land will be all of creation given to Christ's saints. He will be the king of all creation, and he will judge every nation according to what they've done. What will be the standard he judges them by? God's absolute righteousness. He will rule and the father will see that he rules Herod kills the children not because he particularly dislikes children but because the state hates God and will try to thwart him murderously but God had already spoken thousands of years before and this is what God had to say about the one that Herod is trying to kill in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So God is promising Christ, you know, sit here at my side and we'll just subdue all your enemies. You will reign and they will be your footstool. They will be crushed under you. In Psalm 2, uh, we read, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. That's what Herod's doing. He is striking at the kingship of God, trying to kill the king, he is trying to break the, the rule of God for the rule of man. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet have I set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 2 ends with, Now therefore be wise, O kings, Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. You judges of the earth, you kings. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. God won't be thwarted. He won't be thwarted by the most powerful of men. God will send forth his angels. God will work his miracles. God will do his will. God will rule. The rule of Christ, though, does need to be discussed just a little before we finish. The Magi are men. They are adults. They have been ruling, uh, at least as magistrates. Herod is in his prime and pomp and rule. But Christ, the king of kings, who will reign forever, whose kingdom shall have no end, and whose kingdom is breaking into the world now, Christ, in our passage, is a tender little child. What is Matthew trying to show us by that contrast? Well, the apostle Paul makes it very clear In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, when he talks about what's happening there in that house and what happened in the manger. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So this little infant laying in the the manger, this this two-year-old child toddling around the house, uh, this person is equal to God the Father, and he didn't consider it robbery to be that, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that 
Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is a king really supposed to do? Not what do they do. When we use the term king, we don't think about this at all. But what does a king, what is he supposed to do? What is he supposed to be like? Well, biblically, a king is supposed to uh, humble himself under the hand of God. A king is supposed to care tenderly for his people. And if he's the king of the visible church, he's supposed to care for the people of God. He is supposed to be totally selfless. He is supposed to give himself for his people. He is supposed to be tender with them as a loving father, not as someone who lords it over his subjects. He is supposed to be giving. He is supposed to be a servant. He who is greatest among you, let him be servant of all. Well, Christ is really talking about what power is supposed to be like, period. When God gives power, it's supposed to be used for the service of men, but men don't do that. But God does. And this little infant, this powerless little infant, he is giving himself, he has emptied himself of all the divine glory God the Son had in heaven. He has come down into earth to die for men. He will humble himself even to the point of death. He will purchase the elect of God so that anyone who has faith in God from the beginning of time to the end will be redeemed of their sins and will be in the kingdom of God forever. He will draw them into his kingdom by his power, by his suffering. He will establish a kingdom that will never end, but it will be a kingdom of a loving, caring, tender father who loves us and will give himself for us and will live for us. This little infant is as far different as the kings we've seen as can be because he is totally different than the kings we've seen. Our king is a servant. Our king loves us, doesn't draw our life away selfishly. Our king is a real king. At the beginning, God said, you don't need kings. You don't. I'm king. I'll be your king. Christ is king. And he is what a king should be. He loves us. He gives himself for us. He lives for us. 